So um, some of you guys know, I texted a bunch of you guys that um, five out of the six of us have strep right now. We're on antibiotics in my home. Maria is impervious to disease, um, so she's okay. But, um, but yeah, we could use prayer. I'm actually trying to find out why I keep getting strep. Um, I've had it many times uh, over the last six months, so I'm about to see an ENT to figure out if there's something wrong with my tonsils or something else, but, um, but it stinks because it makes me very tired and makes it hard for me to do anything. But um, God gave me the gift of antibiotics, <laughs> and like he did you, and I've been able to pick myself up back this week. Um, but this message that I'm going to do today is, is a one-off in the sense that it's not part of Romans. It's not part of the, the excursus we've been doing on Romans. Um, I just felt this week that given my circumstance with my family, the best thing I can do would be to mine deeper out of a beautiful dynamic I'm seeing at work in the Youth Devo and the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark and the Youth Devo. And as I'm doing that, I'm I'm receiving food and excitement from God's word. And so what I did is I just pushed down into that more. And I felt led by the Lord in prayer that this would be a good place to spend some time today. So I'm going to do a one-off message from the gospel of Mark, starting um, in Mark 5, in the middle of that, and we'll move out to Mark 6. That Mark 6 will be the real focus, the first six passages. So if you have Bibles, we'll have stuff written above you, uh, on, projected on the slides. But if you have Bibles and you want to follow along there, please start at Mark 5, um, verse 21, and we're going to go out to Mark 6, verse 6. So we're starting with Mark 5, verse 21, um, and out to Mark 6, verse 6. And one back, <laughs> go back, Ed. Um, and yeah, this is the, the name of the message, the tragedy of belief and the way of faith. And without further ado, I need help. Um, Again, I want to ask the Lord for help. So would you ask God with me? Lord, um, I thank you so much for being reminded uh, about Uh, the throne of grace and mercy. And I pray now, Lord, that you would please um, give me grace and mercy now to help lead your church uh, in the way your word desires it to go, your heart desires it to go. I pray that you would help me to trust you that what I speak would come out of faith and that you would bless your word to our bodies. I pray that the living Christ would be seen and exalted and glorified in our midst. I pray that we would see something more of his goodness, of his power, of his honor, of his dignity, of his worth. And we would be able to apprehend his reality that he is. 
I pray, Lord, this for the good of your church, for her cleansing, for her encouragement, for her growth, for her health, for her endurance. And I pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd And touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up 
and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this the carpenter, the the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Our primary focus this morning will be Mark 6, 1 through 6, the sad story of the synagogue engagement and the people in Nazareth. But I wanted to bring the previous two miracles to illustrate a taste of what's been happening in Mark from the beginning and provide needed context to help us solve a great and relatively famous theological riddle that's in Mark 6, namely, why Could Jesus not heal? From the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been on a nonstop mission. It's fast and furious, this gospel of Mark. Jesus starts with an announcement. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And village after village, Jesus is working his way at quite a pace through the countryside of Judea, calling people to turn from their sin and their unbelief and put their trust in the king who has come for the world and certainly for Israel, first of all. And Jesus does not only speak this message of repentance and faith and hope in him, he doesn't only speak with authority in that regard, he acts with authority, the authority of God's chosen king, to confirm what he is saying as God's chosen king. Chapter after chapter, Mark records one miracle after another in which Jesus demonstrates his authority as the true king. This is what he's doing in Mark with these miracles. He is showing people he really is who he says he is. He exerts power over every disease, every demonic spirit. He exerts authority over storms and seas and death itself. All this happens before Nazareth. And most importantly, Jesus exerts authority over our greatest enemy and the seed of all the other enemies in the universe. The damning sin that separates us from God. When Jesus proclaims to a miserable paralytic, A few chapters earlier, before he heals them, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are are pretty upset. They say, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, but so that you might know that the son of man has authority 
to forgive sins and get up and walk. He says to the paralytic and the paralytic walks. So Jesus previews there what he will proclaim for thousands of years upon millions upon millions of souls over the last 2,000 years as he saves all who come to him through his precious blood, proclaiming all who come to him, take heart, your sins are forgiven. That's the core of his message. That's the core of his mission. And that's what he's doing through all these miracles, validating that core claim to come. But after much ministry, preaching and healing, Jesus comes home to Nazareth in chapter six. And it's on the Sabbath, so to speak, there's Sunday. It's, our, it's, it's Saturday in the calendar for uh, just as El Shaddai worships on Saturday. Erica, hello. Um, so that's the day that Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and he comes to church, so to speak, and he begins to preach. And as he does, the hometown crowd is, the Greek says, they're blown away. The word is, we read in ESV, is astonished, and it's very clo- close to that colloquial phrase of ours, blown away. Their minds are blown. They can barely believe their ears. They know this kid. They remember him. He'd grown up in their little village just a few, maybe months or maybe a year ago, a humble carpenter, maybe making their plows and their benches and fixing their tables. Surely Jesus was respectful and polite to a fault. He had a fantastic worth ethic work ethic. Now he comes back famous and with his own students, his disciples. We're not told what Jesus said in his message that Sabbath day, but it took them all aback. And we can infer from other things Jesus preached that he spoke like anyone else they were, had ever heard. He spoke with authority. No indecision, no flowery niceties. He spoke with authority. He didn't say, thus says the Lord. He said, but truly I say to you. He was the Lord. He might have spoken to the dangers of greed, the reality of hell. He might have spoken to the beauty of God's kingdom, his provision, his gracious invitation and exhortation to flee worry. We don't know what he said, but, but this along with the miracles that they'd heard about took them all aback. They were profoundly amazed. But here is where it gets sad. As they continue to talk about what is going on with this guy, what do we do about it? And, you know, we, we, many of us can understand and experience the flow of, of how it goes when people begin to size something up together in a negative way. It starts to breed more negativity. And they move from amazement to condescension. They have time to catch themselves and to talk themselves out of their uncomfortableness. You remember Jesus. We know this guy. I mean, he's kind of acting like a big deal here. But we know who he is, really. And they remember, this is, I think this is really important. They say, isn't his Mary's son? And they don't say Joseph's son, which means something in the Hebrew culture. This is probably a reference to a rumor that Jesus was the son of a sinful, illegitimate pregnancy. It sounds vulgar, but this is the actual word. He's a bastard. He's not the son of his father. He's the son of adultery or fornication. Mark tells us plainly where their deliberations about Jesus land. They take offense at him. Essentially, they found enough ammo in their imaginations to dismiss him and essentially put him to the side. 
Jesus diagnoses their rejection this way in verse four. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. We might size this up with a very dangerous version of the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. They take him for granted. They're used to him. They're over it. They, they've, he's, they, they got the bigger story. They know him. They got him sized up. And I understand this firsthand. I mean, I, I remember, sadly, uh, this is true of my heart, I remember in my maturing days in, in college, I remember being, even in high school, I remember being sadly, this is sad about me, surprised at how wonderful people found my mom. Because of dysfunction in our family, including my mom's struggle with alcohol, I mainly thought I had my mom all figured out. And my mom sinned against our family with her drinking, and we sinned against my mom with our response to her drinking. So I had dismissed my mom in large, in, 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 in categorical ways. I love my mom, but yeah, there was a lot of shame we heaped on her. And when people who didn't know my mom the way that I thought I knew my mom would come into our mutual lives, especially some of my friends as we grew into adulthood, they were enchanted with my mom. They just delighted, they just found her so classy, they found her beautiful, they found her intelligent, they found her, her just so spirited in ways that I just didn't see, especially growing up. And by God's grace, I began to see, and he did so much to heal my relationship with her through the gospel and through his Holy Spirit. So I, I came, yeah, I came to value my mom and a ton of healing. But in many ways, I had really taken her for granted thought I knew her, knew her worth. The thing about Jesus, though, there was never any reason to take him for granted. He simply grew up among sinners, and it happened automatically. Nazareth had no expectation or real interest in him from the beginning. I say this because Isaiah tells us exactly, 700 years earlier, how it would go for Jesus growing up in his hometown, in his community, and even in his nation. Who has believed what he heard from us? Isaiah speaking of the Messiah. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm of the Lord is Jesus. And Isaiah says this about his upbringing 700 years before it happened. For he grew up before him, before Yahweh, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't that he had no beauty. They just couldn't see it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Familiarity, breeding contempt, is fueled by human arrogance. It's fueled by a, a confident sense that we got it all figured out. We don't have to stop a sec for a second look. 
It's a terrible thing. Sizing up people and dismissing them. Not recognizing them for the image bearers that they are. And we all do it and we've all had it done to us. These people had the Messiah. They had God in the flesh growing up in their little village. They saw him at the market. Maybe they had him play in their front yard with their own children. Maybe they had him fix their broken roofs. Now Jesus didn't reveal his messiahship necessarily at those points, but they must have missed what surely must have been a beautiful heart, a wonderful person growing up among them. But then he leaves and he fills the whole countryside with the power of God in a matter of months. And they can't help but hear the word about him. And he comes back and astounds them with words directly from God, with the weight of God's glory. Like they've never heard it before coming out of his heart. And their response was to comfort themselves by putting him down. He's a bastard child. He might be big and famous out there, but we know where he's from. We know his mom, what she did. Does he think he's above us? And sadder too is that this dismissal of, this dismissal of Jesus apparently takes place also in his own home. As the Lord indicates that even in his own home, he's dishonored. Jesus' response in verse 6 is really gripping to me because he is God. He knows the human heart. We're used to hearing him say things like he entrusts himself to no one because he knows what's in people. But look at verse six. It says he marveled at their unbelief. This is the only time in Mark and only the second time in the whole gospels that Jesus ever said to marvel, be really amazed at something. He's amazed at their hardness of heart, that given all he's done and shown, given the fame that he has already, that's already spread about him everywhere, that's already spread in this village, <clears throat> that they would dismiss him with such hardness, take him for granted. He marvels. But, but go back to verse five, where Mark tells us the result of all this unbelief and hardness. Verse five, he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So we're left with this famous theological question. I mean, if you're, if you're a theology wonk and you're, and you're used to like Ask Pastor John podcasts or Bible Answer Man questions, this is a really good one. What does it mean that Jesus could do no mighty works? We can talk about what it means, the Greek, and he could do no mighty works, he would do no mighty works. It's, you know, I don't know that the answer is there. I think it's clearer in another place. But it raises questions. Did Jesus need their faith to do mighty works? Because that's what some people will teach. They'll teach you that Jesus is limited by your belief. 
I think there's a way in which that's true, but oftentimes the way that that's spoken is this word of faith theology, that it's your faith and the power of your faith that will bring into reality anything that you put your faith into. It's kind of a faith in faith as opposed to faith in who God is and what he will do, theology. And it's wrong. Terrible things have been said in in the name of this word faith theology, like your child died because you didn't believe. You're still struggling with cancer because you don't believe. I don't want to dismiss the need for us to believe God can do whatever God wills. But there's a way that people can bludgeon others with that and There's nothing in the Bible that would say that Jesus cannot do whatever he wants to do for whomever, whenever he wants to do it. Was Jesus powerless without the faith of those in Nazareth? No, he raised dead people. How much can a dead person believe? He silenced storms when his disciples were quaking in fear in the boat. That's not faith that they had. He raised Lazarus even in the midst of Mary and Martha's questioning doubts about him. I don't think this is the answer. Yes, Jesus deserves faith and commands us to to fight for faith, but he is not limited by any lack in us. Some say that Jesus saw their unbelief and in judgment, he refused to do any healings. But given that Jesus is never, as we said this uh, in our Devo on, on on Wednesday, Thursday, I told Quinn, were you there when I offered $100? Maybe you were sleeping. <laughs> I'm just teasing. No, no, no. I offered the kids $100 if they could show me any passage in scripture where Jesus is entreated for mercy, for help. Like truly, not where he's questioned or... Not where his Pharisees are trying to you know, test him and put him in some sort of theological trap, but where someone really, really needs his help for something. I said, give me, I'll give you $100 you can show me whenever Jesus turned anyone away who needed his help. It never happens. I'll give you guys $100. If you come to me, you, yeah, I'll just give you $100. But you're, you're not going to find it. Where someone really, really comes to him and the end result is, I mean, the, the Samaritan woman we've preached on her, he, he makes her wait a little bit. He's trying to drive faith out of her. I'm not going to go into that story. But yeah, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can show me that. He never turns anybody away, ever, ever, ever. And, and so I, I don't think that that's possible, that, that Jesus decided that no matter what, on judgment, I'm going to send you away if you come to me for help. I think the answer is very Simple, relatively speaking. And I I think it can be seen through the larger context of what we read today. What did we see Jairus do? What did we see that woman with 12 years of bleeding do? What did their faith result in? How did it manifest itself? How do we see their faith? Like, what did it look like? Simply this. They came. And they came and they came and they refused to not take, they refused to say, to take no for an answer. They they came and they stayed until they met with Jesus. They planted their hope in him and they went after him and they did not give up until he met them and cared for them and blessed them. They came 
and they stayed. The bleeding woman was, was essentially a social leper. This is something I didn't quite understand, but her bleeding meant that she was ceremonially unclean and could not be with the people. So probably for a ton of those 12 years, she's living like a, like a leper in isolation. When she comes to Jesus, she's afraid of everybody. She probably doesn't want to deal with the shame of the unclean woman is here. She's even afraid of Jesus. She comes trembling. But, but she, none of that kept her from him. She let her desperate situation fuel her. It was her skeleton key, so to speak. A skeleton key in olden times would open any door, supposedly. Her faith in his goodness and power drove her in her desperation to him. Think of Jarius. He had to wade through not just the pain of his little girl's illness, but then the words of his servants who come and say, he's dead, Jarius. Leave Jesus alone. He's probably about to topple at that point. And Jesus comes along and says, Jarius, don't be afraid. Only believe. And so probably, maybe, with just a quivering mustard seed of faith left, the smallest of all faiths, he's driven to Jesus and stays with Jesus. And so I I think this is the answer to why Jesus could not, in the ESV, do many miracles in Nazareth. The unbelief of the people in Jesus' hometown, it worked in a way completely opposite of how faith worked in Jairus and that dear woman. Their faith drove him to the Lord. The unbelief of the Nazareans drove them away from the Lord. Think about the loss. The lost opportunity for these people. The son of God comes back to his own hometown, able to heal. Any health problem they had, any spiritual problem they had, from chronic back pain to blindness to crushing guilt to demonic oppression in them or their children or their elderly parents, any of it, Jesus had authority to heal. But in their pride, these people worked themselves into the belief that Jesus really couldn't help them Therefore, they didn't seek him, and therefore, he didn't help them. Save for the few who actually came. This wasn't his desire for them. They chose to stay in their comfortable unbelief rather to come to him in humble dependence. There wasn't doubt and struggle here. This is a hard-heartedness, this offense they took in him. And in this way, Jesus says, they dishonor me. This is important. Their hardness of unbelief, their staying away from Jesus, Jesus calls it dishonor. He is without honor among them, manifested in a refusal to depend on him. So, Brothers and sisters, I think there is an appeal from God in this passage this morning for me and you. Staying away from God. 
dishonors him. Not depending on him. Not casting ourselves upon his mercy. Not crying out to him. Not fighting to wrestle with him. It it doesn't say good things about him. It doesn't honor him. What honors God is a faith that depends on him and not ourselves. See, God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from you and me. What he calls us to in the gospel, at the very core of it, at the very core of what he calls us to in gospel, is not firstly a life of serving God, but a life that depends on God for everything. And that is how he is honored. That is how he is glorified. Not by us making much of our ability and our power and our gifts and our having it all figured out and our holy perfection and our moral fortitude. That honors us. That glorifies us. What honors God is us depending on him. for his mercy, for his help, for his patience, for his ability to clean again and again and again and again and not give up on us, banking on that. Our serving him, our loving him, our works for him, they all flow from that depending on him for the help and the power and the love that we don't have in ourselves. And then there's this other caution to us that familiarity breeds contempt. Can I just say, familiarity is a hard word to say. (laughs) I have practiced that word a few times in the last uh, few days. But there is a, a, a caution here. Familiarity breeds contempt. God is calling us to not be like the Nazareans who let familiarity breed contempt into their hearts until they were hard. Many of us have been believers for a really long time. We've read the Bible for many years. We know the rhythms and the language of American Christian culture. We've been to a billion church meetings again and again. We've been in discipleship groups and small groups. We've heard hundreds of sermons. We've had many, many, many quiet times. And while that heritage can build a wall of strength and faith in us, and oftentimes it really does, and it can breed faith and supply faith, it can also, if we're not careful, have this kind of been there, done that in the Christian thing or it, it, it can invite a kind of encroaching deadness, a, a slow hardness to the things of God. It's just church. It's just Sunday. The guy doing the sermon again. The worship song, these words, all the slides are, you know. Oh, 
there's that person, they do the door. I mean, I'm not asking you guys to walk around like this all the time with this astounding amazement, but, but, but to really think, like, this is a holy place. I don't mean the building, I don't mean the carpet and the chairs. I mean, this community is a holy place. God's put his name on us together, together. He's put his name. He calls us his wife. He bought us with his blood. When you walk in and you see Deb or you see Lori, you're seeing someone that Jesus bought with his own blood. We're miracles. Image bearers, new creations filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We're his temple. And we can kind of just, oh, that annoying, oh, that, oh, that's, and it happens with our Bibles too, doesn't it? I mean, it it does for me. We, we, I got like 17 Bibles at the house. People in China who would cry for days over getting a Bible probably, and I read the words, and sometimes I just don't see the words anymore. Just, oh, this verse, I've seen it, I know it. We don't perceive in our hearts that these are God's thoughts to us. Happens in prayer. Does it happen to you in prayer? I know part of this is a function of me getting older, but I can pray for a moment and barely remember what I just prayed for. I don't think that's just because of my four kids. I was about to say five kids. I have four kids, not five kids. That's how bad my brain is. But it's not just that. Like, I'm a professional prayer. I'm a pastor. I have a goal that sometimes I make where I try to pray for you guys by name every week. And I, I have to fight to make that meaningful for my heart. I, and I don't always make that goal, but that is my goal. But we can pray and, and barely remember what we prayed for. Can it be easy for us to go through the day and realize we've hardly been looking for him and we haven't been expecting him to show up at all? Like, can't that be the, 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 the mantle on our day? We just haven't expected him to show up at all. Like, not only have we not been seeking him, but related to that, we haven't been expecting anything from him. We haven't been, our eyes haven't been open for him because we just kind of live in this discouragement. We give ourselves over to anxiety when he longs to help us by being the place where our anxieties go. Pour your anxieties on me, he says. Or we give ourselves to self-confidence. We don't recognize that we're dependent on Almighty God for every ability we have. And so maybe in smaller ways than the Nazareans, but in these functional, quieter, daily ways that can add up over time, our lack of belief, our lack of seeing what's really going on, seeing who Jesus really is, it keeps us away from him. Even, even while he longs to meet our dependent, expectant hearts with help. So, so we want the Lord this morning I believe to make us like this dear woman that Jesus meets in her pain and he says, daughter, 
daughter. Your faith in me has made you well. The Lord wants us to let our faith in him show in coming to him again and again and again like Jairus and this daughter. So Lord, let let us hear your promises afresh, not taking you or your words for granted, but treating them as holy gifts, treating your words with reverence to be believed. We want the Lord to help us remember to take our, our prayers seriously because he takes them seriously. To encourage our hearts that, like we said this morning, regardless of our emotional state, our coldness, our lack of, our, our struggle with doubt, our, our feeling like we have no faith, the blood of Christ has won the hearing of God Almighty and he is listening to us as our Father. As I've said to you before, the work of Christ on the cross has opened a door to God that no one can shut. That's what he came to do. Not only forgive you, but give you access to God as your father 24-7 for all the help you need to keep going. With even the smallest mustard seed of faith, even saying like that poor father in a few chapters to come, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The Nazareans, they didn't do this. And you know what happened? They didn't get anything from God. They could have had a lot and they got nothing. And if they stayed in that place, hardened, They died in their sins and never got God to this day. So we, we want to not be like that, right? And even as Christians, we want to make sure that we don't end up in places like James tells us we can end up. You have not because you ask not. You're just not coming. You're just not relating. You're not, in, you're not working this relationship that's been given to you out anymore. And so the unbelief that will not come to Jesus and will not depend on Jesus should not expect to receive from Jesus. On the other hand, our refusing to give up, it will prove our faith in him is real. It will result in our meeting Jesus. He may have to teach us a lot on the way, The journey to the answer we're hoping for might take a lot longer than we wish. It might even not be the answer we're hoping for, but it will be a better one because it will be the best thing for us. But our, even with mustard seeds, even with, I believe, help my unbelief, it will result in meeting Jesus if we do not give up. It will result in daily moments of mercy and grace in this life and and in a fullness of friendship in this life that while it won't compare to the fullness 
at the resurrection will be beautiful to us and soul-satisfying to us. And instead of holding Jesus in contempt with our unbelief, we will honor him with our dependence, with our coming to him. We'll make his heart glad by leaning into him and depending on him in our weakness, in our inabilities. He shows up powerful and able. Thrills our heart, satisfies us. And he receives the praise he deserves.